sure how many people would be interested uh, in this. Uh, as I was planning out, well, some of us might think of this being weird and wonderful, it might fascinate some of us. Uh, but um, this really emerged out of uh, some thinking I was doing at the end of last year. And uh, I was uh, planning the sermon series which is coming up, or which we've just completed on Mark. Uh, and uh, as I was going through the gospel, I thought, what, what will we do with my Mark 13? Uh, which uh, is uh, the passage that we're going to think about this evening. We, we were going to focus on this on the evening of the 3rd of April, but then that became Martin's last day, and we had church lunch. And uh, we didn't think people would want to come back uh, for an evening event, uh, having done a church lunch. But we, we have this passage in Mark 13, which is often called uh, the Olivet Discourse. And we've got uh, similar passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And uh, my guess is that most of the time when churches are putting together a sermon series or planning on one, uh, the approach that we take is to ignore them. Uh, because they just seem a bit weird and they seem a bit strange. And there's all this talk of uh, the sun darkening and the moon not shining wars and rumours of wars, and because it all just seems a bit far out, we think, well, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that well enough uh, alone. But um, I just want to suggest that it's, it's, I think it's good to confront these more challenging passages, and at least attempt to look at them, examine them, and uh, consider what they might have to teach us. So I want to spend a bit of time um, about 35, 40 minutes roughly, just going through this verse by verse. Matt's going to do the reading for me uh, to sort of break up the, the, the voices. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, and then we'll take a little bit of time for some uh, group discussion and feedback. And then at the end, I'd like to suggest we, we pray for the world uh, as well. Because uh, I think it's important not just to talk about this stuff as a kind of abstract exercise, but to see it as being something which is relevant to our So gracious God, uh, I come before you now, uh, we come before you now, and I pray that uh, you'd be with us this evening, that you teach us, you inform us, you'd uh, broaden our understanding of what is uh, a huge topic, uh, and uh, one that we confess that sometimes we shy away from. But um, we, we don't want to do that, we, we want to come to this passage trusting you, trusting in your word, the words that you spoke so long ago, and trusting in your spirit to uh, open uh, up these passages uh, to us. And I pray that uh, at the end of this evening that we'd just be, be a little more light shed, and that we'd be able to, to look at these passages in a way which informs us uh, more about what it means to, to live for you. And I pray all of this in your name, Jesus. So um, I was beginning to think about Mark 13 probably a couple of months ago. I thought I'd better do a little bit of planning. I'd better look uh, a little bit further ahead. And uh, at the time that I was beginning to think about this, it was the end of February, and the topic seemed a little bit niche. And then the world changed, because I think it was on the 24th of February 
that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, there was just uh, this, this huge change in headlines and, and uh, this massive story was something we're all trying to come to terms with. And then it was a, a few days after that, I think on the 1st of March, that I came across this video that lots of people were sharing online. And this is uh, a reappearance as if from the shadows, uh, or at least from retirement, that was made by uh, a certain Pat Robertson, uh, an American preacher who some of us may have heard of, but we'll, we'll just watch this clip for a moment. To do something amazing, and that will be fulfilled. I think he can say, well, Putin's up in his mind, yes, maybe so. But at the same time, he's being compelled by God. He went into the Ukraine, but that wasn't his goal. His goal was to move against Israel, ultimately. And God is getting ready to do something amazing, and that will be fulfilled. And what Putin is doing by moving as he is to set up uh, Ukraine as, as a uh, staging ground for one of the armies, and then across is, is Erdogan, uh, Turkey, and, and the, that, between them, that little Dardanelles area. And it's going to happen. So I just say that is what's coming up. Is Putin crazy? Is he mad? Well, perhaps. But God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and I'm going to draw you into this battle, whether you like it or not. So there we go. Uh, discuss. Now, I, um, I, I watched that and found it quite fascinating because I, I kind of felt, and I don't know if this is the same for anybody else, but I was almost being taken back to Middle Age. Uh, because um, I grew up uh, in a, a time, I don't know whether, I mean, I know Northern Ireland is something of a subculture, but I think it was probably uh, more reflective of where evangelicalism was at the time, when there was quite an obsession with all of this stuff. So I used to sit in a youth group when we would regularly listen to recordings of Larry Mormon singing, I wish we'd all been ready, uh, and then go home with the kind of petrified uh, feeling about, I don't know, I turned around and my twin brother had disappeared. Uh, because he'd been raptured and I uh, hadn't. Uh, but there were certain people, particularly in, in, in the church I was in, and I knew other people like them, who would just spend so much time speculating and obsessing over this topic. I don't know whether this was a thing that others of us were aware of or lived through. Uh, there would be charts and there would be maps to explain all of this. I can particularly remember a lot of speculation about Mikhail Gorbachev when he became uh, the leader of the Soviet Union and whether his birthmark may or may not be one piece. Yeah, so some of us probably remember this uh, as well. And like I say, it's easy to look back and laugh at some of this, but a lot of people were very serious about this stuff and it reflected a sort of movement of being evangelicalism which was, was preoccupied with this issue. One of the developments which brought all of this about, and, and probably brought it more into the mainstream, was uh, the public 
variation uh, of books like uh, this one, which is coming up now, Live With an Earth, by uh, Hal Lindsey. Uh, out of that, uh, that was spun off as well, the Left Behind series. And so, Hal Lindsey wrote this book, which was based on dispositionist theology. Uh, and these are ideas that were uh, developed in the 19th century by a guy called John Nelson Garvey, who originally was a church royal minister. Uh, and he became one of the founding uh, figures of uh, the Plymouth Brethren. Now, we don't have time to go into dispensationalism in too much detail, but one of the key principles of this is the idea that, that history is divided into various ages, or dispensations. And the number of ages, or, or dispensations, depends on, on whose particular interpretation you're reading. And when you look at these uh, particular models, you will find that they, 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 they sometimes, or often, cover the whole sweep of scripture. So there's an age of innocence that runs from creation to the fall. Uh, there's an age of promise that goes from Abraham to Moses. There's an age of the law that goes from Moses to Jesus and so on. Uh, and then at the end, you have millennium. Uh, you have a period of, of a thousand year reign of Christ, which ends with the final judgment. And there are also conflicting views on where the second coming of Jesus fits with this. So there are pre-millennialists who think that it's before the millennium that Jesus returns, and there are post-millennialists who think it comes afterwards. Uh, some of us might be listening to this and thinking that it all, all seems a bit niche, but it did become very influential uh, for a while. And uh, I can still remember growing up uh, a particular obsession with the state of Israel, for example, and its establishment in 1948. And if you look particularly at things like American politics, you will find uh, some politicians and senior church leaders that are again who are, are really into this stuff. So, um, interestingly, how Lindsay would point to some of the words uh, that we're going to read tonight in Mark 13. Uh, and uh, the idea he was obsessed with was that Jesus' return would be within one generation of the establishment of Israel. And uh, he said that the biblical term was 40 years, which led to a lot of his readers being convinced the world would end in 1988. One of my favorite stories from this time uh, is to do with the publication uh, of a book by a man called Edward C. Wissons, uh, who was a NASA engineer turned Bible scholar. Uh, he wrote a book called Idiot Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be uh, in 1988. And um, when it didn't happen, he then published a follow-up called Idiot Reasons Why Christ Will Return uh, in 1989. Uh, but it didn't sell as well, and, uh, and, then, and then he stopped. Now, I, I, I think we sort of went through a period when uh, we sort of moved on from all of this stuff. Or maybe we didn't, and it, it just went below the radar. But uh, I, I do wonder why a lot of this was caught up with the idea of the Cold War. You know, I think we were living through the idea that it really was possible that there might be a, a, a sort of a nuclear... Uh, explosion uh, and crisis. Uh, and then the Cold War ended, uh, and there probably came a period when we thought we could all relax a bit more. Uh, there was a guy called Francis Fukuyama, an American academic, who, who published a book famously called The End of History in 1992. I think it was this idea, the West has won, Western democracies have won, and we're, we're moving into 
uh, a period of, of more subtle calm. But I, I wonder if we are now moving through a, a time where we're beyond all of that, and, and we probably are being more and more shaken out of any sense of complacency that we might have had. And we probably are more used to having wars and, and rumours of wars, to use the language that Jesus uses in, um, in, in Mark 13. So when I think about what's gone on, even in the last 20 years, uh, we've had 9 11, and we've had the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There has been terrible uh, civil war uh, in Syria, revolutions in places like Libya, and just an appalling suffering and destabilization of our world. We've had the emergence of uh, what feels like a particular sinister form of politics, post-truth. Uh, we now live in the era of fake news uh, and uh, a particular, I think, disturbing form of politics where everything is questioned and there seems to be very little certainty. We've had two years of a pandemic. Uh, we've now got a war in Ukraine and one of the consequences of that war uh, has been to make us more aware of the fragility of our energy supplies and food. No more sunflowers. No more crisps. But even things like this, uh, we're becoming used to, to, to reading. Now, I'm not listing all of these things because I want to be a prophet of doom, but there is a sense in which the news just feels far more serious. We cannot be complacent. We do have a sense uh, of the world changing. And what do we do with these things? How do we approach these things as disciples of Jesus? You know, is, is there a way of looking at them? Uh, and is there a way that the Gospels might inform how we look at them? How does he want us to respond to what is, is happening? How does he want us to live? Because I don't think he wants us to turn away. Uh, that's one of the temptations. It's easy to think, well, it's all too much, it's all too terrible, I, I just can't take it anymore. But nor do I think he wants us to obsess over it and go into conspiracy theories mode. Uh, and I just want to suggest that there might be another way of looking at all of this, and Mark 13 might be one of the ways which helps us do that. So what I thought we'd do first is just go through uh, Mark 13, uh, sort of section by section, try and draw uh, a few points out of each of these sections, and then I'll make some general points before we go into the discussion. So first of all, we're going to look at the first four verses of Mark 13, where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. If Matthew's going to come and read that now, and hopefully this will stay As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everything will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So here's Holy Week. Um, Jesus is uh, spending the week coming in our Jerusalem. And uh, during the week, 
that we have the short account of, of the disciples that leave the temple, which is this place of incredible significance and astonishing splendor. It is hard to find words which convey just how important this building is to the Jews of Jesus' day. So it's, it's sometimes known as building as Herod's temple. I think we've got a picture of it here. Uh, because of the significance of, of, of the investment that Herod is expanding. So it's not just one building. It is a whole kind of complex uh, of, of, um, of, of different places of worship. And right in the center, you have the Holy of Holies itself. Uh, so the total area it covers is 36 acres, 24 football pitches. I mean, it's absolutely massive. It's vast and it's grand, it is impressive, and it is the focal point for the Jewish people and their religion. This is the place where heaven is. And Jesus looks at it and he says, You see all of this, it's all going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. It's very hard, it's almost like you find like a modern analogy to this. But imagine being on the Capitol Hill, say, or Washington, and standing in front of the White House and telling any American who's willing to give you an audience that it's all going to go a Capitol Hill in the Rotunda. And that even maybe doesn't do it justice because of course this is this is both uh, political and theological in its significance. Perhaps to say either good or the Vatican and stand outside St. Peter's and say we'll all be destroyed. So this is a building which just gives such a sense of reassurance and hope to the Jewish people. Even though they are occupied by Rome, even though they're under the oppression of the empire, they still got the temple. And the temple signifies, if you like, God's abiding presence. And yet Jesus says, it's all going to go. And there are some commentators who see in what Jesus is saying kind of similarity to the prophecies of Jeremiah. So before the invasion of Babylon, Jeremiah has warned the people of Israel, don't place a false hope in the enduring presence of the temple. This is, of course, another temple that's Solomon's. But you know, he says, don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, don't presume it's the Lord to be here. Don't be complacent. Don't think the world will always function in the terms that it does. And here is Jesus, and he offers a similar warning. And what do you know? He was proved right. Because in 66 AD, uh, the Jewish people rebelled against Rome. Uh, they began uh, a rebellion uh, initially around tax, and uh, I think it was something to do with the, the levels of taxation that were being raised to rebuild Rome after its fire. And it was a disaster. And they held out for quite a while, but it led to the Romans capturing Jerusalem, and in 70 AD they destroyed And of course, most of us will know now that all that is left of that original structure is, is the Wailing Wall. So here is a warning that Jesus offers first. He predicts the, the temple's destruction. And we're going to come back to that a little later, but we'll, we'll move on. Uh, probably the lengthiest section of this that we'll look at is where he goes on to talk about the temple's destruction, to hardly be discerning uh, in times of, of tribulation. 
So Matthew's going to read 9 verses 5 to 23. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local church councils and flocks and synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and their father his child. Children will rebel against their parents have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but those who stand firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down, or enter the house to take anything else. Let no one in the field go back to get their clothes. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequal from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear, all signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, I have told you everything in advance. Thanks, Matthew. So gosh, there's just, there's just loads going on here. Loads going on in these verses. And uh, hide away your way through it. But I, I just want to offer sort of five broad points about what I think Jesus is saying in these verses. So first of all, what I think he's saying is a lot of things are going to happen that will be pointers to the destruction of the temple. But beware of people who are going to come along who are going to claim sort of secret, special knowledge of what will happen. Don't be taken in by people who say they have an inside track on these things. Perhaps Stand up saying, don't be taken in by people who come along uh, and say they know exactly what is happening uh, in Ukraine and so on as well. So he says at first, a lot of things are going to happen that will be pointers to destruction of the temple, but, but don't be taken in by those with special knowledge, with them special knowledge. He also says there's going to be an evil leading to the destruction of the temple, but you need to understand these aren't signs of the end times. So if you look at verse 7, it says, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And it's also telling that with regard to all of that, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. And it seems to be that part of what he's saying here is, stay calm. You know, there are always going to be uh, wars and conflict of some kind. 
That is just what the world is like in its form. So try to remain level headed. And it's interesting, he goes on to speak of these things as being, if you like, the beginning of our things, uh, the sort of upheaval that you might see as the old world goes away. But it doesn't mean the world isn't right to end. And that's thirdly, Thirdly, he says, followers of Jesus are going to continue to bear witness to him in a fallen world. And that means you will live in a world where there is conflict. You will live in a world where there is war, where there is famine. And when you think about it, that could apply to any, to any time. It could apply to our present time, but it could probably apply to any century, any period in history of the last 2,000 years. There's always been stuff going has always been upheaval like this. And he says this, and then he says, a further implication of, of, of sort of bearing witness to me in the midst of this chaos and disorder will be that you'll face persecution. You'll be handed over to local councils, and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. Uh, and we can see in these words a prediction of what was going to happen in the early church. And we can see a prediction of what's going on in the world now for people who are followers. Jesus. So like I said, I, I think it's fair to say, any, any person over the last 2,000 years who's a follower of Jesus could be reading these words and thinking they're describing what we're going through now. But we're still in this long period which is just birth pains. Perhaps signs of upheaval, but not the end itself. And then it says two more things, I think, in these verses. Jesus' followers will face persecution, but God will be with them and us. And God will protect them and us. So when you are on trial, Jesus says, God will give you the words you need. And uh, even though people hate them, even though they might be betrayed, Jesus will see his followers through. Verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So it strikes me as quite similar this to what you see in Revelation. Remember you've got the letters to the seven churches, there's always a promise at the end of seven letters to those who overcome. So Jesus is saying, I think, in all of this, he's not saying this for us to be scared and anxious. He's saying all of this, I think, to assure us and his followers, things will be hard, things will be difficult, but I will look after you. And I think there's, there's something here about that reassurance that we need to come back to near the end as well. And then he finally says, all of this means that the followers of Jesus need to be in a state of readiness. Uh, and that takes us up to some of the most obscure words that you read in the whole passage, uh, which he says in verse 14 about the abomination that causes desolation. And um, these are words which are particularly hard to make sense of because they, they appear to be backwards. So there are a couple of verses in Daniel, uh, you find them in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11 and 12, where this phrase is used by Daniel to describe something absolutely terrible that is going to happen one day in the temple in Jerusalem. And most people now think, or most Jews of Jesus' time, we've come to think that Daniel was referring to something that took place in 167 BC when the Greek leader Antiochus Epiphanes erected a pagan temple, uh, or a pagan altar in the temple, and he sacrificed pigs to Zeus even in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem. So this is, this is just the most terrible, uh, appalling thing 
which could ever have been conceived of by the Jewish people. And strangely, Jesus seems to be speaking of it and referring to it in the past and then saying it might happen again. And it's one of the things which, which makes this passage really quite hard to understand. Because you seem to have nods back to something that's happened a few hundred years ago. You seem to have a nod forward to something that might happen in AD 70, and then you've got bits talking about the end of the world. It's making sense of them. But what we do know is that shortly before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, again, there was all manner of chaos. That the temple precinct was taken up by Jewish uh, freedom fighters, and it, it just descended into something appalling. Uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans was, was just a terrible, terrible event. And um, uh, you know, the city itself was surrounded by the Romans and it's terrible suffering. Now what's interesting is that there are some experts who believe that Mark wrote his gospel under all of this time around the late 60s AD. So it might have been that Mark was writing this time when these events were taking place in Jerusalem. And interestingly, you've got that little phrase in verse 14, let the reader understand. Seems odd. Why has that been inserted? Well, it could be Mark's thinly coded way of saying, pay attention when you read this. Look at all of the bad stuff which is going down right now and don't get involved with it. When you see trouble kicking off in Jerusalem, flee the hills. You know, get out and don't get involved. Don't get drawn into the schemes of Jewish rebels because they don't stand a chance of don't trust that God is going to come to the rescue of these earthly institutions. Uh, and then this section finishes with another warning to be alert. And so we had, we had those uh, readings this morning from Matthew 25 about all of these parables which talk about being ready. So there's something about being ready and being alert that Jesus is encouraging us to do. So to sum all of this up, there's, there's just a helpful comment that uh, a commentator called Tim Gombus makes on, on this passage. The destruction of Jerusalem is not the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Moreover, upheavals during the present age are not signs of Jesus' return. These are the ways that the present age must work out. It is going to be a time of distress. That will see the rise and fall of the nations and the growth and destruction of earthly institutions. And while wars, famines, and economic hardships all cause great anxiety during this age, faithful disciples are not to leave these as signs of the end of history. Such false messages may be so convincing that they could even have led astray God's elect, if that were possible. And so the church needs to exercise great caution an extreme assignment in order to remain faithful to its mission in the present age, amidst the great upheaval that will characterize it. So basically, lots of stuff is going to happen. It will feel good, but it's not going to stay calm and stay self-disciplined. I'll just take a little bit more time to look briefly at what happens in the rest of the chapter. And again, by to Mark 13 to 24, when he talks about the coming of the Son of Man.
in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So, Jesus has been talking up to now, uh, up to, to verse 23, about the upheaval which is going to mark the turn of things. But verse 24 seems to mark a transition point. And we then find the same in those days following that distress. And he speaks here uh, about the coming of the Son of Man, which is, of course, the phrase that is used uh, all the way through Mark's Gospel, uh, and you find it in the other Gospels, about the way of talking about himself. So he seems to be alluding to a time when he's going to return, and he talks in very dramatic terms about what will happen when he's about to return. He says, the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall from the sky. There will be massive people of the whole of the created order. And at this time, Jesus says he's going to gather all of his followers from the ends of the earth to himself. Now, why is this uh, significant? Well, again, I wonder whether it's all indeed to what he's been saying about the temple. So, fascinatingly, there, there, are, there are prophecies of the Old Testament that speak uh, about how, at the end of the world, at the culmination of, of God's purposes for the world, the nations of the world are going to be drawn to Zion. So you think, for example, about uh, what Isaiah says, Isaiah 2. That in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. So this is the hope, this is always the hope that Jewish people have. One day, all of God's purposes are going to be completed for the world, and there will be a kind of gathering of the nations to Zion. But here we have Jesus, and he speaks of this fulfillment in different ways. How are the nations going to be gathered to Zion, if you like? How does that make sense if Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, is being destroyed? But Jesus himself has been talking remember about how he himself will be a new temple. So he says uh, uh, somewhere else he says you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. So I think the part of what Jesus is saying here is there is going to be a gathering of humanity to God. And it is going to be a time when the mind of the Lord's temple will be established. But actually that will be in me. It will be in me that, that heaven mind is earth. And when I come and I arrive I will gather all of my, my people or all nations to myself. So we're nearly done uh, looking through this chapter. Just a brief comment. We're not going to read verses 28 to 31, but it's where we find Jesus uh, speaking of the fig tree, and uh, he refers back to an episode in Mark 11 where he curses the fig tree uh, and speaks of it never bearing fruit uh, again, which might seem strange to us. But uh, in the symbolism that Jews of this time would have been familiar with, the fig tree was seen as representing the temple. So again, I think Jesus is saying something about how the temple in the future isn't going to bear fruit uh, again. And uh, he refers to the fig tree image and he says, when you see the leaves appearing on the fig tree, 
We know that the summer is near. And then in verse 28 he says, when we see these things happening, we know that it's near right at the door. Uh, and again, there are some people who think that this is his way of speaking about how the temple will be destroyed. When you see violence in Jerusalem, you have to understand that the, end, the end destruction of the temple is, is, is coming here. And then the chapter ends with, uh, with these words. And as It's about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with an assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, when the cock crows, or at dawn. Beast come suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So again, we've got uh, just these final words, which uh, I, I think are a bit of a reflection of how hard this chapter can be to make sense of. Because it does sort of zigzag between all these various events. Like I say, you've got the, if you've got the bits that refer to the destruction of the temple, and you've got the bits that refer to the chaos uh, and the people that there's always going to be in a fallen world. And then you've got the moment when Jesus talks about his second coming. And uh, that's what he's doing at the end. And he offers this parable about this man who goes away, leaves his servants in charge, and talks about the need for them to be in a state of constant readiness, be ready for me to return. Uh, and we've got these comments be on guard and, and be alert. But well, I think there's something key in, in understanding what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's saying, read all the signs of the end world and, and try to work out how I'm going to return. I think he's kind of saying, you just need to be in a state of constant readiness. And that doesn't mean you've got your hands strong and constantly thinking, I could come back at any moment. I think what he's really saying is, just get on with being church. And the way that you can get ready for me coming back is don't be in a state of complacency. Don't sort of fall asleep. Uh, just, just get on with doing what I've called you to. Because a little bit like those parables that we were looking at this morning, like the, 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 um, the parable of the times and the parable of the sheep and the goats. You know, get on with working for me and using what I've given you to remind you to. Get on with serving the food. Get on with get on with putting those pure in prison. Now I realise that it's a very uh, quick whistle-stop tour of 37 verses, uh, and, and it's hard to do justice to the sheer complexity. But um, the question then comes, we so what? What, what? what do we do with all these verses? Uh, and, and is there anything here that we can apply to sort of living as a disciple of Jesus in 2022? Well, I just want to offer three quick suggestions, uh, and then I thought we'd have a little bit of discussion time and then we pray. So the first suggestion I'm going to make in terms of trying to make sense of this is just actually let's not get distracted by wrong things. 
I had spoken as you don't know. Uh, I was on a Sunday earlier. It just seems like for some people in the church, this issue of the end times and when Jesus is coming back has always held a certain fascination. There are some people who you know, they just love this stuff. And they love nothing better than doing it. You, you look at the, um, that Pat Robertson video. And I remember watching that and thinking, uh, you know, we never know. Why is it that in spite of all of the warnings that Jesus makes, I'm not speculating in this way, and in spite of the fact that so many people get egg on their face for predicting things that don't come to pass, we always want to get going in this way. There always seems to be a market for us. Why is it that certain leaders want to play this card? And they want to make claims to sort of special knowledge and inside of the commission. And it happened in the days of the early church, and, and it still happens now. There always seems to be an, an audience for people who go into these sort of theories. When I, when I was growing up in Belfast, I used to go to this place called the Faith Mission Bookshop. It's this huge bookshop. And I had a whole section um, on the end of the world. You could buy books predicting when the end of the world would finish. And what I used to love was that when the time expired, when the book predicted the world would end, it just moved into the sales section. <laughs> they didn't even get rid of it. You could, you could just buy it uh, a little bit more cheaply. But I, I wonder if there's, there's something in here about how it's always easier maybe to fault the people who are presenting stuff as hard facts and black and white and saying, you know what, I can offer you certainly. You know, I, I, I can tell you how it's going to be. And there is an allure to that. There's something very attractive, isn't there? It's hard sometimes to go on trusting God when things seem uncertain. Maybe it's easier, we think, to, to, to go for these theories. And yet, I think the other thing to bear in mind about them is I don't actually think that they, they do offer the sort of safety or reassurance for the hope that they pretend to. Um, there's a guy called Michael Gorman, who is uh, a, a very fine American New Testament scholar. He makes a really good point about this sort of genre of literature and all the left behind stuff and so on. What he says, and I think it's really helpful, is this sort of speculation doesn't lead to people trusting God more. It, it actually leads to the opposite. It leads us to be suspicious. And it leads us to be always looking out for danger signs and always looking out for COVID warnings of the second and it becomes a distraction from doing what we really want to do. If I am preoccupied with when Jesus is going to return, and the fact that I might rise up to meet him in the sky at some point, I'm not going to be as concerned as one of my neighbors. I'm not going to be as bothered with staring at COVID. I'm not going to be as bothered with, with loving people and getting on with what he's, he's called me to do. So I think there's something here. Don't be distracted while this factor is. I also want to suggest, let's think about what and who we're trusting in. And uh, it's worth thinking back again to the very start of that passage and what the disciples say in, um, to Jesus in, in verse 1. Luke, teacher, what massive stones? Wow. What magnificent buildings? And of course, Jesus' reply is to say, everything that you're trusting in will one day be 
one day none of this will be left standing. Uh, and I do find it challenging to think about this and consider what might we be investing in? What are we trusting in? What methods are we resorting to? And um, in verse 14, which is said earlier, seems to be a reference to the Jewish revolt. It's like a warning about when the violence begins. Those who think are rich Jewish should flee the mountains. Uh, I think Jesus is saying, don't get involved in uh, either trusting in institutions and don't get involved in trusting in violence. Don't think that if you get drawn into political schemes and warfare and stuff like that, you are going to be advancing God's presence. All of this stuff will end, will end badly. I just found myself thinking, are there some things that we come to trust in as churches which may be a distraction for us? And maybe we're heaping too much on them and loading too much hope on them when we need to be trusting in Jesus instead. I think there's something more pronounced and far more serious going on in the United States at the minute. Where actually if you take a look at what the evangelical movement have, have done, I mean they've just allowed themselves to be completely drawn into the political agenda of certain uh, political leaders. Uh, and as I said before, when the history of the Trump presidency is written, it will have evangelicals right through, right through, left, right, and center. And it will not read well for us. But I, I, I wonder as well if there are times when the UK church has done this as well. You know, you, you take a look at the missionary movement uh, of, of the church in the UK, it's all written. Uh, so much of it was linked to this sense that God had given Britain a special power and it was God's elect nation and, and uh, there was a kind of providential blessing. It all seems so troubling when we, we look back on that now. And I, and I just wonder, are there still ways in which you know, we, we, we have presumptions about how as Christians we always want to have a certain privilege, a place uh, in society, and we expect stuff to work on terms. Bear in mind that Jesus is speaking these words to a bunch of his followers uh, who knew they would face persecution, who knew they would fight, who never expected to have any great influence in society, who didn't expect to have a lot of power, who didn't expect to have a lot of resources. And what does all of this teach us about how? We are to be Jesus' disciples in the future. I do think we probably are moving into a time in the next 40, 50 years when a lot of the inherent models of church, a lot of the resources we've had, the money we've had, the influence we've had, a lot of it's going to go. We are going to be forced back to being a more marginal people than we have been. And um, it's going to make us think, what have we been relying on? What have we been investing in? How do we measure success? So are, are we open to being people who are maybe going to travel a little bit lightly and not be as influential and not have the ear of the leaders and politicians but work for the margins? And then just the final thought, I think, which comes to me is um, let's just stay awake because we've got these commandments from Jesus throughout the passage to be watchful uh, and alert and uh, especially uh, near the end you've got the parable you don't know when the owner of the house is going to come back. And uh, like I said, you've got the parables of Matthew 25. And all of that just raises the question, what does it mean to be awake? 
and I think you've got some important things here to deal with. Doesn't mean to be distracted. It doesn't mean to be studying the newspapers. It doesn't mean to be getting on a bit of a property handlers. It means just getting on the change. And preach the gospel and declare the message of hope to the world. The point of the suffering of the here and now. Heal the sick, feed the poor, serve others. Uh, be busy. Like the folks said this morning. And um, I, I just wondered as well if um, there's a call here not just to be faithful and, and not just to sort of get on and do stuff, but also particularly to be faithful even if things get hard and we have to suffer. And uh, maybe there's just a final comment I came across which is worth sharing. I, I wonder if one of the reasons why there's another poignancy to Jesus and stay awake is where this all fits within Mark's gospel. Because of course it says all of this in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, Jesus is with the disciples. And he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he just wants them to stay And they can't actually. And uh, this is what one commentator says uh, about that irony. But in Mark's story time, the tragedy is that the disciples in that episode, will not stay away with Jesus in Gethsemane, they will sleep. And they will betray and finally abandon him at each watch of his final night because they don't understand his call to the cross. But this call to vigilance is primarily directed towards the historical existence of the region. So I think what he's trying to say is, well, it works on one level. Jesus is saying, stay away from him. He's talking to his disciples around him. But actually, we pick up this book. Got this cold stay awake coming down through history. The discipleship community is exhorted to embrace the world as Gethsemane, be alongside Jesus, and stay awake in the darkness of history and refuse to compromise the politics of the cross. Now, I realize I've packed an awful lot in there. I hope it's not been too much, but I just thought it might be worth trying to take a little bit of time just to unpack this. I, I hope it's made sense, or at least I hope some of it has. But um, I just thought it might be worth taking a little bit of time to talk about this, maybe for 15 minutes, and then we can have a little bit of uh, reflection at the end, and, and then we can pray. Is it worth exploring this question? Are there ways in which we've become distracted? And are there ways in which the church we're, we're just putting our trust in the wrong things, uh, as Jesus warns again? And I wonder if there are any ways to come out of this as you, you look at this in the light of this teaching of Jesus. Does it, does it sort of change your view of how best we can witness it uh, in, in a world which is, which is chaotic? So I just thought we might want to yeah, stay 10 15 minutes uh, and maybe talk about this.